Not how I would refer to myself, but I will take it. See? I like it. Yeah. Uh, it's my thing. I like to do like a big, long intro. Um, no, that's great. So that uh, it bores the guests. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to Montreal Sauce, uh, the podcast where we talk to makers, uh, creators, and friends. Uh, my name is Chris, and I am not a robotic dog. Uh, my co-host, who is not the 14th doctor, is Paul. Hello, sir. Hello. <laughs> um, today is uh, a fun day. It's our first show of the new season, uh, which we arbitrarily choose seasons. How fun. Um, <laughs> today's guest is an Edmonton media mogul, formerly with Capital Ideas and Post Media. He's a producer, a writer, a journalist. His passion for creating content and community was evident in The Edmontonian, a publication he and Sally Paulson started in 2009. For two years, they shared stories and content they themselves would consume, and it led to a TV series. I even used the archive of The Edmontonian to learn more about my new home when I moved here. After the success of that project, he and Sally created The Edmontonian Media Company to produce more projects. The Underdogs of Comedy is one of the latest projects, which you can watch on YouTube. Uh, and a week ago, our guest announced he's also starting a news magazine called Edmonton Quotient, or EQ. Mom, distinguished patrons, and our other 16 listeners, please welcome <laughs> shoe guru master Jeff Sampsono. <laughs> Thanks very much, media mogul. That is uh, not how I would refer to myself, but I will take it. See? I like it. Yeah. Uh, it's my thing. I like to do like a big, long intro. Um, no, that's great. So that uh, it bores the guests. Um, <laughs> See if we're paying attention to the things that you're saying. Right, 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 right. You're like, I did that? Yeah. That guy sounds pretty great. <laughs> uh, oh, if I wasn't married, I would date him. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, and this episode obviously is brought to you by our sponsor unofficially, Shugru. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> are you talking about like the the stuff that I wrote one blog post about? Yeah, exactly. To fix stuff in my house. Yes. Yeah, the Shugru is great. I actually recommend it. It's a weird little rubber like Play-Doh thing that you uh, you can mold to fix things, and then it hardens into like a nice solid uh, solid rubber, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I remember when it came out, it was like, hey, check this stuff out, like all over the sort of life yeah. hacking blogs and stuff. And then I forgot about it. And uh, I had a lot of trouble getting um, Apple to sell me new feet for the bottom of my laptop right. because they wanted it to be in for like an actual appointment to get repaired. And I yeah. was like, no, just sell me the feet. I'll just stick them on. They're <laughs> like, no, we have to have your laptop for days, you know. <laughs> And so we have um, a special proprietary adhesive that's very dangerous. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I read um, I read your post about that, and I was like, oh, I'm going to order that. And so I made my own feet. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, that's awesome. Um. Yeah. So I guess we'll jump right in. Uh, so you were born on a cold no uh, <laughs> cold July night. <laughs> so cold. Uh, you, you graduated from, uh, Fanshawe college. Is that how I say it? That is correct. Nice. Uh, with a degree in broadcast journalism, a diploma. I'm, I'm not that smart. Oh yeah. Yeah. And am I misunderstanding it or is, uh, I feel like I get this confused a lot. Um, being an American scumbag, uh, <laughs> is it, <laughs> The college and university means a different thing in Canada, right? Yeah, because in the States, college often refers to just sort of like the state school or, or universities, right? It's yeah. like community college, um, which we all are more familiar with now because of community, uh, the show. <laughs> um, yeah, which would be similar to our colleges here in Canada. Um, yeah, so it'd be like the the lower tier or the more... More of the courses would be things that um, would be more hands-on, I guess, like kind of work. Like a technical school. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are, are technical schools or some, you know, version of that. So, yeah, like Nate here in, at Edmonton would be similar to where, where I went. Gotcha. And so uh, did you – that's in Ontario. Is, is yep. that where you grew up? Or It is, yeah. So my, I'm from Ontario originally. Fanshawe's in London. 
Um, I grew up a few hours north of Toronto. So, yeah, that was, you know, did the whole like high school tour of a couple of colleges and different things. And you go to the the high school gym or the college gym where all of the various schools are lined up to try and get you to apply for things. And yeah, so I, I stayed pretty close to home for that. Wow. So now you're a prairie kid. But. I am. Yeah. <laughs> and Edmonton's not my first prairie city. Uh, after school, I went to Winnipeg for a couple of years. Nice. So yeah, so got accustomed to the the dry cold and the minus 30s, minus 40s and that kind of life. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, you graduate with your broadcast journalism, uh, diploma and yep. then you, uh, so did you end up working in that area for a while or did you go straight to Winnipeg? Uh, straight to Winnipeg, like literally out of school. I think a week difference between sort of finishing the last exams and stuff and then a week off and then packed all my stuff up and headed out to Winnipeg for a couple of years. <laughs> nice yeah yeah didn't know anyone just moved there just for the for the job uh was willing to kind of move everywhere I, I applied right across the country I, I remember applying to some Edmonton stations and uh recognized some of the names of people when I actually got out here that I'm like I think I sent you an application you know when I was 20 years old and finishing school and you couldn't have wanted to talk to me any less uh but yeah I got really lucky working at uh, a pretty prestigious uh, station. I think still probably prestigious, but definitely at that time it still was. Uh, CJOV in Winnipeg, which was the big kind of news talk station there and had a lot of heritage to it and uh, kind of got to work under uh, a Lou Grant style uh, kind of <laughs> news director, very curmudgeonly <laughs> kind of old school stuff. It was fun. And uh, yeah, it was great. And And like I said, I moved there not knowing anyone. And it was uh, pretty welcoming. Um, I mean, Edmonton has that as well, but Winnipeg is a great kind of welcoming artsy community. So it was, uh, it was an easy place to kind of just move sight unseen. Nice. Yeah. I know, I know the CBC shows that my wife listens to, uh, uh, usually the fun little weekend shows are never too kind to Winnipeg, but, uh, I think it's one of those places we like to make fun of, you know, yeah. in Canada. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. And uh, so that was radio that you were in? That was, yeah. So I uh, went to school for broadcast journalism, which was primarily radio. Um, they've mic- they mixed in a little bit of television and they have more of a mix since I, since I left. Um, and obviously since the internet has sort of changed everything, I'm sure they have quite the mix now. Um, yeah, but it was radio and I worked in Winnipeg, bounced over to Toronto and then out to Edmonton. And, um, yeah, so that was all radio. Wow. That's crazy. Um, and did you do like any, uh, work when you were actually in the school, like work study or anything, or did you just have a job on the side? Yeah. Fanshawe is actually pretty interesting, um, because they got, I think one of the first or the first, uh, FM licenses for like a, like a, a college station or a college like program. Um, and so there was, there were actually two stations at the school. There was sort of an in-house one that played in the hallways of a few buildings. And like, I think if you were in like within like a hundred meters of the school, you might be able to pick up kind of like really, really low frequency thing. Um, which sort of in first year, that's where you got to do most of your work was on that one where not really anyone would hear you live do anything right and you could record stuff and do air checks um but then there was an fm station an actual proper fm station um and so the broadcast journalism folks we did news kind of on the hour on the half hour and the drive times uh monday to friday and on the weekends and the radio students um who were learning more about like on-air announcing uh, and that sort of side of things is a different program they kind of ran the the on-air stuff with the music and and sales and and those sorts of things which is all part of the whole like learning scenario but a big chunk of the second year was spent working on the station in the station so that was kind of neat and like you're literally on an fm station that people can tune into in london right that's slightly nerve-wracking and they and they have to take it pretty seriously too because you've got a crtc license (laughs) right yeah so yeah it was it was definitely like learn on the fly and uh, not too much in the way of safety nets. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I mean, a lot of the students that come out of there get jobs kind of right away and, and tend to be working for a long time. I mean, you definitely 
the the technical school side of things, I mean, that's a huge advantage if you're doing something where if you have that base of skills to jump right in, then you can sort of jump right in. And that was definitely a huge advantage, I think, to, to me being able to go to a station that, you know, had some clout to it and that they'd be willing to take me on because I knew how to do so many of the things that you would be doing on a, on a daily basis in radio. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. so many. Yeah, it's, it's always an interesting thing when you come to like uh, universities where you get the nice, well-rounded, liberal education, but then you have to go somewhere and basically do on-the-job training because <laughs> you yeah. get that well-rounded view <laughs> where the tech schools can just really hammer it into you. Yeah, and I know more schools are doing this, but even when I was leaving, they were partnering up with Western um, University in London. And that, so if you were uh, doing a, a four-year communications degree, there was an option to do sort of two years of the communication stuff at Western, and you do the two years broadcast journalism. So you'd learn both sort of that that theory and that background, um, and then you'd also get like the the hands-on stuff. And I think that was kind of a, a cool idea. And I think there are more, I think, programs that do some of those things now, like with colleges or, um, you know, we see universities like I think McEwen um, here, Mount Royal, um, or Ryerson in Toronto, like that are kind of a mix. They're not that full out kind of academic university. Right. They've got that mix. So I think that's kind of a, an interesting way to see sort of some of that education go, especially with so many kind of programs or, or, you know, walks of life where you can use a lot of skills that you'll be doing on the job. Yeah. We've talked about it on the show a lot because Paul is a programmer, but not um, formally trained. It's all mm -hmm. self-taught. And mm -hmm. so it, it's, Sally is the same, isn't she? Pretty yeah. Much? So my wife and, and a partner from uh, the Edmontonian, the Edmontonian Media Co. And she's she's going to build the Edmonton Coaching website. <laughs> um, yeah. So she did uh, go to the Edmonton Digital Arts College here um, when it was still called Guru. But that's a great school. It was a private, so one year kind of course. Um, and did learn a lot of stuff there. But since then has been a lot of self-taught because um, mm -hmm. there's just so many languages to, to code and program in. Um, so, yes, yeah, she, she's definitely been self-taught. So, I mean, I don't know what Paul has done, but um, it's it's not easy to do that. But I think it's it's easy enough if you wanted to do it. You can still kind of learn in the world. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, especially if you're if your goal is or if you're you're looking at trying to build websites and that kinds of thing, uh, because you can always open up your browser and it, basically every browser still has a button in there that says view source. And so any web page that you can look at, if you want to know, like, how did they do this? Uh, once you kind of learn the syntax and, and the vocabulary of what uh, these programming languages look like, you can pretty much take any website apart and kind of figure out, Oh, that's how they did that. That's how they made, you know, this button float over to the side or, or do whatever this, you know, crazy interaction was. Uh, and there's so much great open source software out there that you can you can learn with that kind of stuff. I, I when we uh, at the place that we work at, when we hire, we often hire people who um, they may have they may have a college degree, but oftentimes that degree may not be in um, the particular position that we're hiring them for, because we're always looking really more at. Uh, their portfolio, their interest, and their kind of personality fit than we're necessarily looking for. Uh, did do you you know check the check the degree boxes? Do you check the certification boxes? Yeah, I think that's something that's really changing in in a lot of workplaces, especially in like professional creative workspaces. That there's everybody applying has some degree of knowledge or skills to do the the stuff you're going to get them to do. But it, what are what else are they bringing that you can really tap into? Yeah, I feel like I mean that's why I kind of went off on this tangent was because. Um, it, like coding and programming, like uh, that, that that kind of stuff is something that you have to keep up with because it's changing daily. And I feel like as more technology creeps into our lives and everything that we do, like universities have the money usually to like keep up with it, but their programs don't always right keep up with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that can be a problem. But like what you just said also made me think like I feel like there are a lot of savvy places that do hire that way. And like where Paul says that uh, he's working, but at the same time, like there's a lot of bigger organizations where HR hasn't caught up with that. Right. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. they won't even get hand out the resume to the person like who needs the person to hire. <laughs> That's my excuse for not having a job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh yeah um so i think it's kind of interesting like uh, i saw um in my uh stock research not stalking right. uh, of you i i saw like you know um somewhere you listed listed that uh you know you were I forget like the really awesome term that you used, but like a content strategy or something like that. And I I was just like, um, I feel like I check off a lot of boxes for some positions like that, but I feel like my resume itself doesn't reflect that. Like if I were to go like get it, look for a job somewhere then like be like, I can run your social media and I can run this and that. I'm like, well, where's your experience? I'm like, look at my Twitter account, man. Yeah. <laughs> look at my podcast. I put my Twitter account on my resume actually. So nice. Uh, why not? People are going to check anyway. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. should. They should check. <laughs> I, uh, I hired a few years ago for one job and I, it was, I was doing the Twitter checks and I saw a couple of tweets from one guy that I was like, mm, I don't know. So it was helpful in, in that sense. But um, yeah, I will. I was just a product strategist. Maybe that one is the one that uh, that stood out, which I mean, I, I have no training in being a product strategist, but <laughs> s- some of that is just like job titles now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like yeah. What, they didn't exist five years ago or you just sort of make them up or, or, you know, everybody has a community manager, but it can have four or five different kind of connotations depending on where you're working and the work. I think that's being the done. term. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I think it's still going to come down to sort of like, okay, what, what do you put underneath that, you know, where you explain the stuff you actually did and hopefully that's what the person is looking at and they're not just trying to match like your previous job titles with whatever the job title is they're trying to hire for right now. Yeah. Which I mean happens, you know, sometimes. I think our first or second podcast, whenever that was, like 80 shows ago or so, was Vote Vote Chris for Job was the title. <laughs> so realistically, like my big theory is that it's, you still get jobs through people you know. So I just invite people on the podcast to help me network. Hi, yeah. Jeff. How are you? Hey, why not? We'll connect on LinkedIn now and uh, you'll see some people in my network. You can write each other some reviews. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did podcast but, with him. Turned out well. Yeah. Nice. I think it's true though. I think it is still a lot of that networking or your your own networks, right? That you'll find things or hear about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um <clears throat> so yeah, fun fun tangent there. Uh <laughs> So uh you bounced around three different cities. You listed those and that was yeah. for Chorus. Was that the name of the company? I was, yeah. So I ended up working at uh All Chorus radio stations. So here in Edmonton is 6:30 Ched is the news talk station. Um, iNews 880 didn't exist when I was over there. Um, started uh, soon after. And uh, yeah, CGOB in Winnipeg and uh, helped uh, 640 Toronto when they launched uh, into the news talk format. Previous to that, they were Mojo, which was like this kind of <laughs> cool, <laughs> testosterone talk radio, mm. which uh, you can see how well that did, I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it wasn't around for... For super long there was one in vancouver too i think but uh weird yeah and then that became like the traffic station so <laughs> well i can see the connection like yeah. masculinity to cars yeah yeah so, there you go it was uh it was interesting i mean we don't have that many interesting formats in canada so i don't know maybe that's something we have to go back to with some of these stations we have so many radio stations why not Take a little piece of the the advertising local pie there, and with your weird niche, yeah, yeah I think there's something to it. I yeah, it's. I mean, it's true. I mean, that's what we talk about at the podcast meetups here in Edmonton all mm-hmm. the time. It's about finding your niche, and like that's where your audience is, and play to your audience. And it's not a lot of. Uh, uh, that's something I was going to talk about later too. Is uh, you know we want there's the idea of more. You know, like you all profit, must profit, capitalism, yay. Yeah. Like you got to do more than last year. And it's like, no, actually, people are having a lot more success when they find their niche. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really interesting. Like every time we go to the podcast meetup, it's like we talk about the niche. And I listen to all these like local Edmonton people talk about like what they're doing in Edmonton. And I was like, yeah, our, we do it wrong. our podcast doesn't really have a niche we just like to talk to cool people and like get to know a story because everyone has everyone has a great story so (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, there's still a niche within that, depending on who you guys are bringing on, right? True, true. But uh, then that's really hard to find guests if you get too deep. <laughs> true, it could be. Yeah, and if you're if you're too niche, right, or you tap out that community, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you uh, you how did you end up in Edmonton? Then was it was with Chorus, I guess? Uh, yeah. So um, Sally uh, wasn't my wife yet, but. Uh, we were together we were in, we met in Winnipeg and then uh, we ended up in Toronto. I had gone out there first and, uh, and somehow convinced her it was, I was good enough that she should come out there. <laughs> and so we were in Toronto and, uh, neither of us were really enjoying kind of what we were at at the time and sort of decided, well, well, Sally, I had a job, but Sally sort of jumped around to a couple of jobs and decided, well, she'll apply you know, some spots around the country. Um, her background was sort of in news and editing at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we just sort of waited. And of course she's from here originally and didn't necessarily want to come back here. So of course this is the first place that calls is Edmonton. (laughs) That's how that works. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, and then I, uh, applied for a job and and happened to get one out here as well that they were looking. So, and it uh, all kind of worked out that way. Nice. And is that, um, was that another radio job or was that the yeah. Uh, AMI? Okay. Uh, yeah, no, that was radio. So I was at, uh, Ched, I bounced between Ched and, uh, city TV here in Edmonton sort of over a couple of years period. So first came out here, was doing some part-time and over overnight stuff at Ched and then bounced over to city, then back to Ched. Um, so yeah, sort of mixed it up for, uh, yeah, about two years. Then they came out with a radio station called The Bounce, named after yeah, you. That's the, right. Yeah. Bounced yeah. after, named after me. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So then I, I read like uh, in your LinkedIn, yeah, then it was the AMI was next, the accessibility media. Yeah. So um, when I was at City, I started volunteering uh, at a place called Voice Print because I had previously been in radio and still thought there was cool stuff to do with like talking and audio and, and that sort of stuff. And, um, and yeah, sort of volunteering at this thing called voice print, which was reading, uh, newspapers and print material like that. That's not at that time and, and still not even a hundred percent at this time, um, completely accessible to someone who is blind or low vision. So it was basically creating audio versions of newspapers and stories and grocery flyers and kind of everything that's that's in the newspaper. So I would volunteer there. And then, yeah, the coordinator who was originally here, he moved to Halifax. Somebody else came in for a little while. And then um, the job sort of opened up and I applied um, and ended up getting it and ended up spending seven years there it was voice print and then it became accessible media inc so am i um a couple of years into it and they really expanded because they they had one broadcast license so this audio channel ran on television um in a very uh, a variety of kind of formats depending on where you were and what kind of cable package you had um and of course there there's the web as well and then they applied for and got a new television license that was going to be an actual video channel and that was sort of when they sort of became AMI and sort of had this big rebrand and they, and they still are AMI today. And that second channel, uh, the big primary thing about it, the content is um, about people with disabilities, uh, about the communities across Canada, um, reporters on the air. Um, all of them, I think, have a disability, um, primarily um, blind and low vision. Um, but there have been some other reporters with other disabilities. Um, so included in the, the production of everything, too, that there are people um, who have disability to tell those stories, which is just a really cool thing. And there were people uh, in Toronto at the head office uh, of voice print um, when I started, too. There were a couple of people there who had um, visual impairments and disabilities. Um, but it certainly expanded as they moved into television. And uh, and and the big thing about the content is so there's their that's the style of content, but then it also has all description to it. So a combination of, and they're getting away from it, but that sometimes you'll watch something or you'll turn on a description track and it's telling you what's happening in a scene, right? Describing mm-hmm. the action. Um, so that, and then in the the news content, the original stuff that they're producing, kind of really mixing that into the script at the initial stage. So you would, 
you could you know write a story that you're you're telling this story or you have your whole show um that runs but because of the way you've scripted it and when you recorded the stories all of that description has kind of been built into the narration and so this thing can run and you never have to worry about it getting a description track like pretty much everything else that gets produced has to have a description track so it was yeah it was a really cool uh place to work uh, a small kind of national broadcaster doing like really important kind of incredible work and i i had the opportunity to to go down to the states for an international conference with a group down there that kind of does a lot of the audio print recording uh across the country down there so that was kind of a neat opportunity to meet people doing that work and and yeah i every chance i get i still sort of talk it up because i think it's it's a great place doing uh, doing great work. No, I uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, that sounds like <clears throat> a really great place. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and I want to do more good in the world, <laughs> but like I'm like always attracted to things like that. And uh, so when I read that, I was like, whoa, this sounds fun. It was like a fun rabbit hole of my research, like described video and that kind of thing. I just thought it sounded really cool. Yeah, it's it's really interesting stuff. Uh, most people, you know, we sort of say. Or we would say that you know you, people discover described video because they've accidentally hit something on their remote, right, and turned on the description on a channel. Um, but yeah, it's huge and it's it's super important to get people uh, sort of equal access to the same content that everybody else has. Um, and it's it's slow, but there's there's a little bit more of it happening here and there with with some movies, some movie theaters. They're doing more stuff um, where people can get that description track in a in an earpiece. Right. If you go to the movies, um, I think Cineplex does that at a number of theaters, if not most of the chain. Um, so, yeah, you know, if you're blind, you can go to the movies and you can listen to the mm-hmm. description. You can sit in the seats with everybody else. Right. You don't have to go off on your own and get this special DVD at all, you know, to be in there included, um, which is huge. And, and it's great to see the strides they're making in Canada with that with that stuff um, and really pushing um, internationally, like, you know, they're at the leading edge of a lot of these things and especially a lot of the scripting things, really building that into the content because so much of it is just taking the existing product and then kind of adding a narration to it, right? Wherever you can kind of slip some audio in to describe what's happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a weird, it's a weird and fascinating world. Yeah. Is there, I feel like, is there a company like somewhere in Grand Rapids that does a similar thing, Paul? Do you know? Like, I feel like I used to know people that did some volunteer work for them or something. Um, I, I mean, the only place that I can think of that does like, well, it's more the technical side of that is like DVS does oh, uh, sure. things like that. Um, but it's really, that's really just the technical side of things. Um, you can get connected with a lot of people, uh, like that through, uh, like the UCI or the UICA, uh, in Grand Rapids as well. Um, they, uh, they like to connect, uh, all kinds of different people, uh, in arts and creative spaces, but also they have, uh, they have a pretty strong record on, um, trying to make things more accessible as well, um, to various, uh, Taking taking a form of media and making it more accessible to folks who need it in other formats, basically. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, and it's completely possible. Like the the group that I that I met because AMI or Voice Print had been a part of the I double A I S so I A A I S. I can't remember what mm. that stands for, <laughs> but they had a lot of sort of stations and uh, right across the country in the U.S. Um, primarily that did this kind of stuff. Um, so completely possible. There's one in, you know, right there. Um, but yeah, the accessibility thing is just so cool. And I learned so much about it Mm -hmm. being there and working with, you know, even briefly or a little bit that I got to, uh, a bunch of reporters here in Edmonton who were blind, right? Blind, low vision. Um, and I and I say blind low vision because, you know, blindness is not complete. There's so many great, which I mean, just sort of blows my mind still that I can like, you know, there's just so much to accessibility and disability that, uh, that most of us don't think about. And, um, so that was kind of a great experience too, to work with people, um, you know, who, who were blind and low vision. Um, but yeah, the, and to talk about the tech and, and video and, and media and the accessibility of it and really, uh, learn, I think that universal design 
is kind of the best design. So universal design is making something kind of like as accessible as possible to as many people that mm-hmm. could need it. And just compl- I'm completely on board with that because it's so it sort of all sort of felt so simple once I sort of started learning more about it, right? Like, you know, okay, why don't you want stairs in front of a building? Well, okay, yes, obviously someone in a wheelchair can't get in, but neither can you if you've broken your leg. Sure. Neither can you if you're carrying a bunch of stuff, like all these little things that you can change it for a small group, but then it makes it so much better for everyone, really. Right, uh, right. It's it's so neat to to learn about that stuff. And, And the media side, same thing, right? Like now when we watch videos on Facebook, and they've got captions, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just, it's just normal now. It's just, they build them right in. But like captioning was huge for, you know, the deaf or hard of hearing. For for decades, that would have been a real challenge to get so much stuff that just naturally now gets captioned because we don't want to like listen to sound at work. <laughs> <laughs> Who's using Facebook at work? I don't yeah. believe that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, or- at home, after work. <laughs> or even, or even the whole like, if you've got an Apple TV, and, and I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, the Amazon box does this now too. But you can basically say, you know, if you missed, if you couldn't hear something, or if you're trying to keep the volume low to not distract people, you can you can basically tell your TV now, you know, hey, what did they say? And it will go back 30 seconds, and it will turn the captions on, right. so that you can you know read that. Um, so or you know sometimes if you're watching something where. You know, maybe it's a it's a thick accent and you can't quite understand it, too, that it can be helpful for that kind of thing. These accessibility things, they make they make it all better for everybody, even if you go to um, I think the, the biggest thing you mentioned stairs in front of a in front of a place. Well, once they put a nice ramp in or if they better yet design the whole thing so that the ramp is, you know, a, a pleasing aesthetic part of the scenery. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost everybody uses the ramp because ramps are easier than stairs for everybody. Even if, you know, your legs work fine. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of nicer to have a nice slow gradient than to go up some clunky stairs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned Apple. I know a few years ago, at least um, when I was still at AMI, Apple and the iPhone were kind of talked about because there was some good stuff built in there. Yeah. That's again, yeah. probably not intentionally for people who are disabled in some way, but just some different like functionalities and just the different, you know, how many fingers can you use to swipe to do this, to change that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then to turn things on and off and just, and they've just keep building on that. Um, and that, yeah, it's just, we probably all use some of those things without even thinking about it, or it's all now just been naturally built into other things and other products, but it's, it's hugely important to some people when, when they need it. It's one of the ways you can, uh, if you're ever hiring like a like an iOS developer or something like that, uh, the best iOS developers often uh, will have their home button set so that if they triple tap it, it turns on the assistive touch feature, which basically, uh, in when you touch the screen, instead of immediately engaging whatever you tapped, it actually reads the control to you first, and you have to tap it again to engage it. And it's designed that way for people who are blind, but they're using a phone that it's on, the only interface to an iPhone is the screen. And so you would think for somebody who's blind or low vision, it's not really going to do very much good. And yet it's the most popular smartphone for these people because Apple did such a good job of implementing these assistive touch technologies that let folks use a device that is so visual. And yet the entire thing, um, you can operate it without looking at it if you know that assistive touch technology and as a developer you want to implement that into your app because that's a huge market of people who have that phone because it's so good at that and they want to use your app yeah and i mean web accessibility too same things right you can yeah make yep. like a, a click zone larger because then somebody who's um you know using uh, their mouth to operate a mouse or um, you know, has a Parkinson's or something that like it's hard to operate a mouse and you kind of can't click a really small spot to get the link to open or something. It's super helpful, but it's also helpful to all of us who just like trying to click as close as we can get to something and yeah. it, it opens what yeah. you want. So you're happy. And then, yeah, again, <laughs> that universal design uh, end up, ends up helping everyone. Yeah. So, yeah, it was super cool to work at AMI. I recommend everybody check it out, check them out online on Facebook and uh, accessible media. Just watch some of their videos because there's some great talent. There's some great 
uh, production happening there. And they've got a bunch of people with years of broadcast experience running that as well. Yeah, you guys are you guys are really opening my mind here and changing it because I mean it's all about me. But uh, <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big uh, I'm not uh, I'm really against uh, the narration in films i'm like it's a visual <laughs> media if you can't just show it then there's a problem i don't want like a narrator to start a movie out that's cheating <laughs> but yeah well that's I a little different it. right yeah. now you see what you're saying in terms of the 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 art of it yeah for sure, sure. yes yeah but no now now it's a challenge like can i do it both and make it like you know because you don't i mean that's the fun thing about the visual media uh, of filmmaking is you don't actually the words don't have to line up with what's on the screen mm-hmm. like lots of filmmakers do that editors do mm-hmm. that all the time yep. so yeah interesting like i said it's all about me uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so what what happens there is now you've spent a number of years uh not really i mean i guess that is tied to a little bit of journalism but you sort of it floated is. away a little bit from journalism, yeah. didn't you? It's not daily journalism, which I think is what most people think of when we think of journalism. You know, the the daily newsrooms of, of radio stations, TV stations, newspapers. Um, but it definitely was. Um, certainly after uh, the, the TV station or the video uh, TV station launched. And, uh, you know, the local bureaus. So we had one here in Edmonton. I also... Uh, looked over the one in Winnipeg for a while, um, were producing a lot more original content. So a lot more interviews, um, both video and audio, and uh, and a lot more like original stories once the, the TV channel really started rolling. Um, so it, it was still journalism. I wasn't necessarily involved in all of the day-to-day, um, probably had some sort of oversight or inclusion in, in, in producing of the local stuff. Um, which was great. So yeah, I was still sort of involved in, in bringing some of that experience and storytelling um, and news to things, um, especially because our our reporters weren't necessarily all media trained. They didn't come to us with all uh, media backgrounds. You know, there was a few across the country that had that. Actually, um, Kelly McDonald, who's still doing stuff out of Toronto, I think his show Blindsided is still on. Um, he actually went to Fanshawe. Uh, years ahead of me and, and he's actually um, low vision so he's a reporter now doing a bunch of stuff there and he had been working there when I started but um, but most of the reporters here didn't have backgrounds in media so it was kind of helpful to have us as some of the staff at the station as well who did to kind of help that along as best we can because the most important thing again talking about sort of skill sets the most important thing for for AMI in terms of these storytellers were they were going to bring their perspective to these stories instead of me, uh, you know, a sighted person who can hear, person who's able-bodied telling you about, you know, something. Um, and then maybe, yeah, we have the description track on it. So it's, it's accessible, but I'm not bringing that perspective. Whereas somebody who's blind or low vision experiencing the same thing can bring their perspective in and, and be a better voice for that community than, than I can be. Um, so that was also another thing that was really cool there was it really opened my eyes to that kind of media and journalism too, right? The, the involvement of those, those key voices within a community talking about their community or talking to their community. Um, and then you're not talking down to people and you're not sort of talking about stuff and the audience says you have no idea what you're talking about, right? Because, you know, you don't understand it, which in this case was disability and accessibility, um, but can apply to, you know, across so many things across like race and class and all sorts of things. So it definitely opened my eyes to that, those ideas of um, not just who the storytellers are, but because it can, it can also be covered off to some degree in the people you're talking with in the stories. So that too, right. Instead of the same sort of group of commenters and experts that, that news goes to, to really kind of get out of that zone and find people who can really speak to this stuff. So it it wasn't daily journalism, but it was certainly probably a great uh, experience in learning a lot of stuff about journalism and and some other life stuff along the way as well. (laughs) Right. Well, I just, I was trying to, that was my sneaky lead up to say, like, you kind of went away from it. And I was going to ask, is that why um, 
you and Sally then started the Edmontonian. <laughs> yeah, I think we did because we had both been working in news. Um, she as a video editor primarily, um, although she did work as a reporter at the Portage the Prairie Daily Graphic in Portage the Prairie, Manitoba. It's just a small city, like an hour out of Winnipeg. <laughs> um, but mostly as an as an editor, uh, as a video editor, because um, her background was in um, film television uh, training. Um, and I had been, you know, as a reporter, primarily some anchoring. Um, and I think we both sort of had a feeling at the time that we wanted to do more stuff with news or we didn't we didn't think that what was being done was was good enough right we had better ideas and so that was probably the biggest driver of the edmontonian was like well if we're gonna complain about them doing it might as well do something right and kept talking about it and eventually sally pushed us uh, off the edge so we actually started it which was great and uh (laughs) And that too. So yeah, I learned about running a thing, um, having to produce a lot of content. This was all on the side of our own uh, like jobs and stuff too. And, uh, and then again, meeting people through that, that wanted to write a piece or share something um, with their perspective and their take on it. And, and they probably are, weren't necessarily folks that would be included in a story if the the journal or CBC or, or somebody was doing a story on this thing because you can't reach everybody. Um, so yeah, it was the the biggest thing was telling stories in the ways that we wanted to tell them, and then also letting other people kind of join in and do that for themselves. Right back to the community thing, like the yeah. perspectives of the people in the community. So yeah, I I hadn't um, yeah as I was digging through the archives, I was like, wow, you you guys had like so many different contributors. <laughs> like we did, yeah. Which uh, I think on the first year anniversary, we did like a party, and we put together like just like an image of the birthday cake and stuff, and it was trying to like write all of the names of everybody, and there was like thirty, forty, fifty, and it was like wow, like, and this is people that wrote one thing, you know, or they gave us some photos or you know, just did a couple of little things for us. Um, and then interestingly, a bunch of them remain like really good friends of ours to this day. So it was like a really kind of cool way um, to learn, like for us to learn about Edmonton, um, which I think is something that gets missed in journalism by the journalists sometimes is it's very easy to, to be reporting on the city or, or the state or wherever you are that you live um, and kind of miss like all that kind of cool stuff to learn about the city because you do just sort of formulaic churn out of content and you're not really paying attention to the details. Um, so that was probably, I, I think we say, you know, we kind of, we liked Edmonton. It was fine um, and we were happy to live here. We may have still considered at that point that we might move again right? Because we'd been to a few different places at that time. I sort of thought that was kind of the thing about radio and, and news is you'd move around a lot. Um, but then I think doing the Edmontonian, sort of taking a different look at some of the issues and, and stuff happening around the city, paying attention to to businesses that were, were around and, and some of the cool business owners that we met. Um, and then meeting all these kind of people, even very briefly through the contributions or out at events uh, in the community. I think we actually sort of fell in love with Edmonton by doing that, which, um, you know, I think was the, the great spinoff of, of the Edmontonian. Yeah, sure. Well, and like you said, the, 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 some of the larger perhaps, uh, news organizations miss out on that market that you're talking about, if you want to call it a market, but it's really, I think also when you're producing something there is that sort of idea like i'll go back to it again more where it's like how can i make this more appealing to a wider variety of readers or listeners so then you sort of like x out some of the or edit out some of the more local ties like oh you know i'm not gonna mention um the uica in grand rapids because no one in edmonton's gonna know about it or you know <laughs> so it's like yeah. one of those things and so yeah, and I mean, we've carried that into the uh, the original productions we've done with the Media Co. Um, and, and it's something we believe from looking at some of the best content that's out there, like things like Saturday Night Live and the longevity of it. But it's it's super specific, right? Like mm-hmm. none of us live in New York 
And yet we're watching this show where they're making really specific sometimes references to, you know, to people and characters and, and communities and, and neighborhoods in New York or New York State or New Jersey. Um, but it's in that specificity. I was going to stumble on that word. That <laughs> I like that you didn't and you called attention to I it. Anyway. I was, was I felt like I said it really slow. Um, but yeah, in that specificity that the real like humor or the real story is right. Um, and, and, and then it gets, it's again, it becomes universal because you could be talking about the mayor of whatever city, but if you sort of the way you describe them and what's happening, it, it may be very easy to connect with that kind of anywhere. Um, you know, people have crossed paths with people like that, or they've had a right. mayor like that in the city that they grew up. And, um, and yeah, the more kind of local and specific you can be, um, like, I think it's actually does not hurt you in any way. I think it Great. still translates. Yeah. I mean, even your example of Saturday Night Live, they, in the, I want to say early nineties, they did a sketch. Um, I don't know if you know this one, Paul, I know you're a big fan, <laughs> but I also know I'm older. Uh, <laughs> they did a sketch where I can't, I'm not, I totally don't remember the premise, um, Wow, I'm talking about late uh, 80s, early 90s, so I said totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the complete premise, but uh, I feel like it was like some sort of phone line uh, commercial or something. But they were making fun of the way people in the Midwest where I lived talked. And they said everyone in that area has this kind of an accent, which was very like Fargo yeah. accent. And uh I just remember sitting around with all my friends and we're all like, I, what? I don't like, we were all like offended. Like we, we don't talk. Do I sound like that right now? Like, <laughs> yeah. And none of you can tell because you all sound the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was a, right. it, was a, it was a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, <laughs> did you ever see that one, Paul? Uh, yeah. I think I know what one you're talking about. <laughs> He says with some sort of reticence, like, <laughs> quickly googling it to the sides. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, but it was you know. Then you watch it again, and you're like, okay, that is funny because I do know people that talk like that. Not yeah. me, but yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't speak that way. <laughs> right. Insurance. <laughs> right. Um. And so, like, everyone is just uh, pitching in and you've got, like, family members and friends and all kinds of people pitching in. And it was just all because they were interested in your project. It wasn't like you were giving away free muffins or anything, right? Uh, no, I don't remember any muffins. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. No. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, some people knew us, so would would do stuff for us because sure. they, they were they were friends or family. Um but I think I like to think that um, it's because of what we were about and why we were doing it that it kind of interested people and attracted them to to what was going on. And uh, I, I think you see that still to this day with like people who have podcasts or or blogs or websites. I mean, Instagram, you know, follows even like there's people that you'll, you're going to attract with what you're doing if you're kind of um, doing a thing that they like or you're doing it uh, and or you're doing it in an authentic way. Um, that they can kind of get behind or get interested in. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so why why did you guys eventually stop? Like it was two years, 2011, you guys stopped. Yeah, it was uh, it was a couple of years. We had uh, I think run out a bit of a run out of a bit of steam. I think it uh, mm. again we were doing this to the side of of actual jobs and work. Sure, and uh, and other life things. Uh, that just happened. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was probably a little bit of that. Um, we had just done a TV show, a TV series of it, mm -hmm. uh, six part, which mostly landed on Sally's shoulders because of editing, uh, and her ability to, to know how to do it. And I <laughs> couldn't. So she had been, uh, really run through on that one as well. So I think we were both a little bit tired. Um, and again, it was kind of, I think coming to a point where we would have had to decide, um, the next step. So, um, was it going to become a business because we'd never really talked about that previously. And so we would have to put things in place to actually try and do that. Um, I was getting busier at, uh, at AMI, um, as it expanded its work. Um, and so I think we just decided it might make sense to, to hang it up 
at that point. And we felt we achieved uh, one or or some of the actual goals of it, you know, in creating kind of some new ways to look at the city and to to produce news or cover the city, um, which were some of the original kind of thoughts we had about it. And and we had we had achieved that. So I think we were happy with that as well. Mm, right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we had run it as a business uh, and really actually put that work into it today, it may be it may still be running. Um, but we really didn't at that time. Uh, neither of us wanted to jump on that. So I think that was another reason it kind of ended. Well, even Paul here has had to remind me that the podcast is uh, something we do for joy because we (laughs) joy connecting, even though there's lots of kilometers between us and it's a technological challenge for him to do it live and to produce it. And so, so yeah, it's fun. And the minute like we, set up like a Patreon account and we're like, Hey, how do we like get more patrons and do this? Like, and it suddenly becomes more serious and job like, and I'm yeah. like, Hey Paul, what are you, we got to, and then he's like, Hey Chris, remember when this was fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that, which, I mean, there were a few brief sort of business like moments, but we had never really planned on that. And, uh, and which, you know, maybe, becomes a failing in the sense that if people did want to buy ads or did want to like put money into the business, we had no real plan for how to do that or how to handle it. And, and so it just never really, uh, never really happened. And it is, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then you mentioned like, so did the, how did the series come about on Shaw that was based on the, the Edmontonian, the six yeah, I don't series. remember how we originally kind of came up with the idea or decided to kind of pitch them. Mm. Um, I don't know if we had pitched anyone else. We might have just pitched them. I can't recall now. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially it's public access. So that was sort of how it came about. And, um, you know, we had somewhat proven we could produce something. And uh, and then, yeah, we we talked to the folks that were there and they sort of liked it. Um like the idea of it and we you know put put together a pitch for a six episode series and uh and wanted to see how that would go and uh and yeah they were they were great about it yeah you uh you did some fine acting thank you um for sure and yeah uh, in, i mean i think all the cold opens <laughs> yeah, yeah. of the episodes <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I will definitely put a link in all the show notes to them because they're great. They're, I would say they're kind of a radio lab, like where you guys sort of take like a word or a subject and then you go off Mm -hmm. on a bunch of different stories, like a news magazine style on them. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably to keep it somewhat sane to know like what kind of stories we could do to Mm -hmm. fill a half hour. Cause I think it was literally like a half hour, like 29 minutes, right? Cause there's not really commercials on, uh, on Shaw television. Um, yeah. So it was first was the first episode. Yeah. So original. Um, (laughs) and then yeah, money, uh, food, history, Edmontonia, uh, and, uh, and then I'm forgetting another one spring. Yes. Because it was spring. It was springtime. Nice. So, yeah, which but I think that really helped because then you could, yeah, you could formulate kind of the various pieces around that. And it was again, much like the the stuff we were doing for the site, uh, a mix of like news-ish things um and stories. And those would have been, I think we produced them all. Um, some interviews, and then some people could contribute little little pieces here and there. And, um, yeah, it was just a, a lot of fun. And we would end it with like a local band playing a song. Um, I think we tried to make it, you know, fit the theme as well. Like, but, you know, cause we had the provincial archive play at the provincial archives. Um, <laughs> they were playing a concert there anyway, but it worked out really well for us timing wise. So that was kind of like a history piece that we did for that, that episode. Um, and then, you know, we would stretch it. So, uh, the first one, you know, the band was playing for the first time in like the basement of like a scooter shop, right? Like, come on, that's right? <laughs> pretty stretched. Yeah. And then I think for the food episode, we bought a bunch of pizza, right? And brought it to the Empress and had the, I mean, when the band was playing that night. So it was just like stuff like that. But I think it was still, 
it's still, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think the mostly they sort of hold up. I'm sure there's lots of dated stuff in there in terms of what was happening in Edmonton at the time. But, uh, yeah, it was great. The, the great sort of video television lament that we have is we did some live shows out of our apartment, uh, called Saturday night with Samson O, which was like a talk show. Uh, (laughs) I was like at it, at my desk, right. The desk in our apartment. Um, and that, and we did a live election night show, uh, in 2010 (laughs) and we didn't save them. And I'm, I'm, I lament not having those. So I'm glad we Mm. still have the TV show. Paul, do you have your stuff archived somewhere when you had your own little Conan O'Brien type public yes. access show? Yes, I do. I have nice. them on uh, Super VHS. Not, awesome. Not regular VHS, <laughs> mind you. Too good for regular. <laughs> <laughs> well, the TV station that I did them at had, had Super Decks, so I used the Super Decks. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, and that would, you know. That's the one thing that I, I recognize. I mean, now it's everything is like pushed on the internet, but you never really think about it again. But sure, there's yeah. going to be stuff that you want again, and so to always kind of like yeah, back it up somewhere, even photos, right? Facebook or Instagram photos. Mm-hmm. If you want that again, to make sure you've saved it somewhere on a, on your phone, on a drive, on a disc, because yeah, that stuff disappears because that was what happened. So we live streamed through livestream com sure uh, okay. yep. and then they had been changing over some major server change or something right and you had to sort of save or not save um and then i don't think we wanted to i think you had to pay for it or something uh, or other oh, but okay. there were there yeah. were programs or software you could do use to you know rip it Go basically yep. and sure. we just sort of forgot or didn't do it and and now that stuff never never happened well there's there's um I feel like there's a period in time where like uh the where that media changeover has happened and we just didn't back things up. Like I feel like you get like from like nineteen eighty five to like nineteen ninety seven, somewhere in there. Yeah. Like if there's like a TV show or something that you like, you'll probably never find it online because it's just that one guy that had it taped it on VHS. Otherwise, like even the broadcasters don't have backups. Like I even heard a, I think it was like a Leonard Malton's podcast where he was talking to Gilbert Godfrey and, you know, he used to do the uh, USA up all night where they would watch a bad movie and he would, he was the comedian that would host it, him or Ron Shear, And he said, there are episodes that are missing that they don't have archived because basically they would record like a Friday or a Saturday night, air it, and then record over that same tape and camera <laughs> for the next one. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of that stuff is probably lost to some degree. And it will be interesting to see, like, with all this digital stuff and social media, right? Like, when I first got on Twitter, what was I using? TwitPic to, <laughs> yep. to send pictures, right? And then they shut down and they were really great about it because they said, hey, everyone, right. we're shutting down soon. You got to download all your photos or they'll be gone. Yep. Um, yep. Right. Because uh, they may still, I guess, exist in Twitter, but then they wouldn't be on this other thing, too. Um, so they were great. But I mean, it's going to happen where something else just disappears. Right. And if I had to bet, it's going to be something like Yahoo related because they always seem to be in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so, and I have I, I have Yahoo stuff. I got a Yahoo mail. I use fantasy sports. I got Flickr. But I would suspect um, it would be something like that. Right. It'll just the company, whatever the company is, will sort of like tank or close and everything will just disappear mm-hmm. yeah and, and i feel too like it is an, it'll be an interesting like uh anthropology kind of a thing to study mm-hmm. later like we live in this time of like selfies so i mean that picture that i used as my profile picture eight years ago who knows where that is because i don't care yeah. you know like we don't really i, I wonder like how far nostalgia will go back for people like because mm. there's so much digital media archived somewhere right like yeah i don't know it's it was easier to like it's easy to like go to your mom's house right now and like dig through the family album and go oh my gosh i looked so crazy when i was in eighth grade yeah but like i can't imagine like paul's daughter doing that in like you know 30 years like she's just gonna be like let me open this folder that says you know 2009 like a feed scroll through like a 
billion yeah. photos. Yeah. Stop <laughs> posting pictures of your kids is what I'm saying, Paul. Jeez. <laughs> Dad, how did you let this photos library get this big? <laughs> yes. And why are they, there more pictures of me than my little sister? <laughs> hey, so that's the end of part one with Joe Sampsono. Uh As always, you can find uh, me, I'm Paul, online at uh, Paul D on Twitter or Padizio.com, P-A-D-I-Z-I-O. Uh, you can find Chris at Sick Days on uh, Twitter. That's S-I-K-K-D-A-Y-S or sickdays.me if you want to see his uh, website, which, of course, has many links to other things. And uh, like I said, that's part one with uh, Joe Sampsono. And, of course, we will be back with part two next week. Uh, and uh, hit the show notes at montrealsauce.com. Uh, if you'd like to get some links and uh, find out a little more about what we talked about today. Bye.